We are in the series called God With Us. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I'm so thankful that God is with us. I'm just thankful that God's presence is near us and with us. You know, a lot of us are taking time, you know, whether it's Thanksgiving or, you know, the Christmas holiday or times in between different parties where we, we gather around holiday tables and we have moments with one another and, and you, you eat a meal, you share a meal, and then the dust kind of settles and people leave. And, and have you ever been in a moment where you're just kind of sitting there talking with your spouse or something and just saying, you know, all the things you're thankful for? And one of the things you just say, you know, I'm just thankful that those people don't live near us. Have you ever had those... <laughs> people. You know what I'm saying? Just small doses. You can take people in small doses, right? There are people like that in our life, right? We just have to be honest about it. It doesn't mean we can't grow in our love for them, but sometimes there are people like that, right? But then there are other people. <laughs> wow, preaching. Preaching strong already. All right. Might move up a seat. Might move up a seat. It's going to get good. Um, but then there are people who the separation that we have from them like almost kills us on the inside, right? I mean, it's like there's family that lives far away or grandchildren we don't get to see as often as we'd like or a loss of a loved one that we're reminded of or strained relationships, right? I have people in my life right now that, uh, that I'm disconnected with and I don't know what to do to bridge the gap on my end. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, it seems like it's an invite-only proposition and I'm not in control of the invite, Right? And so some of those are very, very painful, and some of those things, that same feeling, some of us might even have with God. You know, we talk about God with us, and it may feel like we're on the outside with God at times, or maybe we used to feel the presence of God, but we don't in the same way that we used to, or maybe it seems like God, it's not God with us, it's God with everyone else, but I don't really experience God like everyone else, and it seems like I'm on the outside, or it's like an invite-only proposition, and I'm not um, in control of the invite. You know, it, it used to literally be that way back in the Old Testament times, especially in the days of Moses. Remember the Israelites, they're set free out of Egypt, and they go into a time of wandering around in the wilderness. Well, they had an opportunity to encounter God, but ultimately it came down to God instructed Moses that he was going to build a temporary tabernacle in which he would live on the inside of that or visit them with his presence on the inside of that. And only a few people would even be able to be around that. And in fact, as he built this structure, this, this temporary tabernacle that would move with them, there was only one person once a year that would get to go into a certain part of it. So let's look at this. We're going to look at it from Hebrews chapter 9 in the New Testament, looking backwards. It says, for a tent was prepared. The first section, so get, get your imagination out, the first section in which there was a lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, and that was called the holy place. And so it was kind of a two-compartment uh, two tent, and the first section had some, some things in it. But then there was a second section behind a second curtain, and it was a section called the most holy place, or some of us might know it as the holy of holy places, right? And it, it had a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. You guys, if you don't know what that is, just go watch an Indiana Jones movie, okay? And you guys know the Ark of the Covenant. It says on all sides it was covered with gold, in which there was a golden urn holding uh, the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. 
And above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. This was all part of the Ark of the Covenant. And that is where the presence of God would reside. It's like right over there in between the cherubim. All right, and it says, these preparations, it says of these things we cannot speak in detail. It says, these preparations having been made, the priests go in regularly into the first section. So there were some priests, invite only, that were allowed into the first compartment of the holy place. But of the second section, only the high priest goes, and he only but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. So we know of what he's talking about here is called the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, you might know it as, or have heard it been referred to. And on this day, they would make atonement for all the sins of, of Israel, of all the people. It wasn't an individual thing. And sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our mind around why this was an, like a, an animal sacrifice type thing. It was all types and symbols of things that were to come. But here's what would happen. The high priest would make a sacrifice for his sins first to make sure that he was pure and that he was taken care of before he went into this, not just the holy place, but the holy, holy place. And because if you went in there and, and weren't pure, you could die. In fact, they would tie a rope around your leg just in case you went in there and screwed something up and you died while you're in there. No one could go in and get you, so they would just pull you out with the rope. That's what they would do. And so, so he would make preparations. And in fact, he would actually uh, take off some of his outward adornment that he would look like a high priest in an attempt to humble himself even going in. But before they would go in, before he would go in, they would take two goats and they would, by the, essentially the roll of the dice, they would choose one of the goats. And this was a way to say, we're leaving this in the hands of God, which one of these goats? And we're just going to leave it into God's hands. And so they would take this blameless goat and they would sacrifice it. And the blood of the goat was where the life was. They, they really were understanding that life is in the blood. And so the high priest would go in and he would sprinkle this life or this cleansing blood on the mercy seat of the altar, uh, of the ark. And it would be a way of washing away or bringing life to death, right? And so that's why you've heard of these things like being washed in the blood. What that's talking about is that there was life in the blood and that there was a cleansing that happened through the blood. And so he'd make these, this offering for the people and then they'd come out and he would place two hands on the head of the second goat. And he would confess all the sins of the people upon the second goat and send it out into the wilderness. And essentially, this would be the scapegoat or exiling sin out into the wilderness. Now, there's much more to say about that, but that's essentially what's happening. This would only happen one day a year. And if you were alive during that time, you were on the outside of the presence. See, the Ark of the Covenant was covered in gold. It was a box probably about four feet long and two and a half feet wide, two and a half feet tall. And that's where the presence of God was, but you didn't get to see it. You were on the outside. You were outside the presence. Now, the, the, the story reminds us of this issue, that when we have sin, if you're in the Old Testament especially, when we have sin, there's not a lot you get to do about it. <laughs> you can't be the high priest. I mean, there was only one of them. You're, you're not the high priest that can take care of your sin. You're not the sacrifice in the story either. You can't even be the sacrifice to take care of your sins. You can't be the lifeblood to be sprinkled on the altar. You can't be the 
mercy seat, because that was what the top lid of the ark was called. You can't be the mercy seat. You have no control over it. And that, that seems like I'm on the outside, right? But that's also good news in all of this, because all of these things were temporary, pointing towards something that was to come. And of course, now we know exactly what that is, because that was not just a thing, but it is a person. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, if we keep reading, it says, but when Christ appeared as what? The high priest of good things that, that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, you see all this imagery is now coming together in Christ. Not made with hands, that is not of his, this creation. He entered once and for all into the holy places. He didn't come so that we would have to have a sacrifice year after year after year. This was all pointing towards something that was gonna be once and for all through a sacrifice, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is the gospel, by the way, guys. That Jesus is all of those things. Jesus is our high priest. But Jesus is also the sacrifice that was given. Jesus is also the one who carries our sin away as far as the east is from the west. Jesus' blood is where there is also life. Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is all of these things. And he became all of these things for us that we couldn't be for ourselves. And that's good news, right? I mean, that's, that's the gospel right there, that Jesus became all of these things. That's why... In the Bible, we see stories of Jesus doing things that seems like everyone else was forbidden to do. You know, because if you were in those times, if you touched a leper, that would make you unclean. But Jesus touched lepers, right? Why? Because there was life in his blood. Jesus never became unclean. Jesus made everything clean that he touched. Jesus was able to touch dead things or dead people and make them alive where others weren't able to. Why? Because there was life in his blood, right? And when Jesus died on the cross for us, he became our high priest, the mercy seat, the sacrifice, the blood of the lamb, the perfect blameless one. Just like that blameless goat was offered, Jesus was blameless and he was offered in our place. And all of that came together on the cross. And then something happened. Remember, there's a, a tent that had two compartments, the holy place and the most holy place. And what separated them was a veil. Well, eventually it moved from be, being just a tent to later on King Solomon would build a temple, right? And then there would be another temple, but that same design would be in all of them where you'd have a holy place and a most holy place where the presence of God resided. And even in Jesus' day, the priest, the high priest would go in and make a sacrifice, make an offering once a year. But when Jesus died, something remarkable happened, right? Many of us know what this is, but let me just help us visualize it. It's more fun to visualize it. So let's watch this quick video, see what it is. In the ancient Jewish temple, a large veil blocked access to the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelled. It was a constant reminder that sin separated us from God. Nobody was allowed in except for the high priest, and then only once a year. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would pass through the veil to offer a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. This continued for generations because the sacrifice could never be good enough. Fortunately, it was just a foreshadowing of what was to come. 2,000 years ago, 
Something changed. A new sacrifice was offered. A perfect sacrifice. One final sacrifice for all of time. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He paid the ultimate price so that the sins of all men could be forgiven. At the moment of his death, the large veil in the temple, the very thing that represented centuries of separation from God, was torn. Torn in two from the top down, showing that this era of separation was over. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the Holy of Holies once and for all time and secured our redemption forever. And so the veil was torn, and that's significant. Because on the other side of the veil was essentially the presence of God, right? Now, what's interesting, and I've never heard anybody preach on this. Maybe you have, but I was just praying about this and studying this week, and I, and I saw this. But what's interesting about this is you have the tabernacle in the Old Testament, which was a tent, two compartments, most holy, or holy place, most holy place, Ark of the Covenant. You have the temple, which Solomon built, which same design, Holy place, most holy place, Ark of the Covenant. What's interesting when that veil was torn in the temple is what was not behind the veil. Because what was not behind the veil when Jesus died on the cross and the veil was torn, what was not behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't there. And that's significant because the Ark represented the power the presence, the, the presence, the protection of God, the provision of God. It, it was God's point of interaction with his people on earth in its most powerful way. And it wasn't there. And if you look at it in the Old Testament, the ark was almost talked about as if it was its own personality. It's like it's, it was its own entity. I mean, Numbers chapter 10, verse 33, it says, So they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. Isn't that an interesting way to talk about it, right? And it says, And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp, and whenever, wherever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and those who hate you flee before you. So they're talking about the ark so connected with the presence and power of God as if the ark is connected with it, right? It's just interesting. The, the priests in Joshua's day, when Joshua took the reins, when they were getting ready to go into the promised land, the priests carried the ark into the Jordan River first, and it was actually the ark that was set out to go before that actually was a part of the process of splitting the Jordan so that they could go over. The ark was, was what they carried around as they marched around the walls of Jericho, right? Even the enemies of Israel knew how powerful the ark was because the Philistines, they stole the ark at one time, and they put it in, in where they had their gods, and they had a god named Dagon with a big statue. They put it in there, and their, their god, they got up the next day, and Dagon had fallen down before the ark. So they set Dagon back up, and again, he falls down, and he breaks into pieces. And they're like, whoa, what's going on here? They ended up keeping the ark for months, but during that time, plagues and boils in an almost humorous way came upon them. And seven months later, they're like, we kept our receipt. You can have it back, right? And they took it back. They said, we're done. 
They gave it back. David wanted to bring the ark back because he wanted to build a, a temple. And as they're bringing it back, he puts it on a new cart and the oxen stumble. And one of the guys reaches out to steady it to keep it from falling. As soon as he touches it, he dies because the power was so strong. David leaves it there at this guy's house, 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 14. And the ark remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. And so David saw, man, the, the ark is, wherever the ark is, there's blessing. So he found a way to get it back. Because the ark had blessing, it had provision, it had power, it had protection, it had all these things. But somewhere along the way, the ark was lost. We don't know exactly where, but many people believe that it was probably sometime around the time of the exile, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, where Nebuchadnezzar came in and he took Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A few years later, he would come back and destroy the temple. At that time, when the temple was destroyed, the ark was either lost, hidden, or moved, and no one knows where. There's a lot of theories about where it's at right now. But needless to say, when it came to the second or the third temple that was built, the third temple that was built after that, it, the ark was not there. And so when the veil was torn, there was no ark of the covenant. And so when the presence of God was loosed, I believe that's significant. Because when the veil was torn, the question is, where is the ark? You can't be the sacrifice of the high priest, but there is, there is something in Scripture in the New Testament that tells us that we can be in all of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You, you can't be the high priest, you can't be the sacrifice, you can't be the blood, you can't be any of those things that says you are t a temple but we could say it more specifically, you are the ark. I believe there wasn't an ark. Essentially, I believe God can use that as a, as a picture to say you are now the ark. We are designed to be carriers and containers of the presence of God. I want you to think about the weight of what I just said to you. If all of the power and presence and protection and all that stuff that, was, that resided in the Ark of the Covenant, whenever the veil was torn, the, the writers in the New Testament says, now you are that temple. Now you are the house for that. Now you are where that belongs. You are designed to be carriers of the presence of God just like the Ark was. And it is the same God. It's not, it's not like there's like a new like God light or Jesus light, power light, provision light that comes now that the veil is torn. It's the same God that we see in all those stories, the same power, the same presence, the same protection, the same provision, the same blessing that was in and resided with the ark as the Israelites carried it around that now you have the possibility to be a container of. Isn't that amazing? It's the, same, it's the same power. It's the same God. It's the same guy. Now, I showed this video uh, last year. I think it was around Christmas Eve. But just a reminder, because sometimes we get it mixed up and we think, oh, maybe that was different than what it is. This, this will kind of help us kind of lodge it in our mind. Let's just take a look at this. Man, I wonder what it was like to really be, to be born in a manger. <laughs> I know, right? 
I wonder what ever happened to baby Jesus. He grew up. Wait, you're telling me that the baby Jesus from the Christmas story is the same baby Jesus as the adult walk on water Jesus? Yeah. I guess I never really put those two concepts together. Wow. Well, I wonder what ever happened to that guy. He went to the cross. That's the same guy? Yeah. Baby Jesus is the same as cross Jesus. Yeah. I, I mean, he grew up. I mean, there's some time in there. You know, he grew up. He, uh... He taught people. He lived a perfect life. He uh, he died on the cross. He came back to life. You know. And now he lives in our hearts. That's the same guy, the Jesus that lives in our hearts. Yeah. <laughs> this is really okay. I guess I just didn't put two and two together. This is. Whew. <laughs> wow. Merry Christmas, Denver. I guess we should just try to view Christmas instead of one isolated event and more of an ongoing story about our salvation. Yeah, it's a, it's a great idea. Great idea. Same guy, but I also want to say it's the same presence that resided in the ark that now has the potential to reside in us. You are the new ark is what I'm saying. And when you understand that revelation of the magnitude of that, man, everything ought to change. But I do know just from pastoring long enough and living long enough and walking through life long enough that sometimes even with that information, if it's not revelation, we can still feel like we're on the outside of God's presence. We still feel like we don't, we're not participating. Well, we still can feel like we're on the other side of the veil. And there's, I think there's reasons for that. Ephesians chapter four, verse 29 starts off and says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear. Any of us have heard this scripture before? It's like, okay, talk, talk nice, right? But then it's, it, it, it adds this scripture right in the middle of this that says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What he's saying here is that these things are tied together to actually grieving this presence of God or repelling in some ways the presence of God in our life. And it goes on, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Boil it down to, the, to three things surrounding this grieving of the Holy Spirit. You could expand it wider, but these are the things right around it here. The first one is corrupting talk or negative words. It very plainly just talks about negativity, negative words, corrupting, rotten talk. Uh, and then it, it lists four things, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander. These four lead to the slander is kind of the fruit of all the others, right? It's like when all these other things are in our heart, slander eventually comes out. And then it talks about malice, along with all malice. Malice is just wickedness or rebellion. And so it's not to say that if we 
don't do these things, or if we do the opposite of these things, that somehow we earn the presence of God. No, that would be salvation by works and all that type of stuff. What I am just saying, though, is that there are some things in our life that push back on the presence of God. I mean, if you have your life filled with negative thoughts, there's not a lot of room left for positive ones, right? It's not to say that the presence of God isn't available. It's just saying we have made room for other things, right? We've repelled or pushed back. And so I want to talk about this really quickly with the time we have left, and I'll just be really quick, but talk about these three types of people, and you might be one of them or all three of them, but maybe you're struggling in this area. The first one is negative people, because you know that everything is contagious and everything attracts, or, right? So whether you're positive, negative, whatever it is, whether you're you know, filled with faith or filled with fear, all these things are contagious. Have you ever noticed that negative people, just have, they just automatically find each other? You don't have to coordinate a small group for them. They just find each other, right? It just happens. Because everything just kind of attracts. They flock together, right? And I don't know about you, but I'm at the point where I just don't want to be around negative people anymore. I'll minister to them. I'll pray for them. I'll encourage them. But I don't want to fellowship with them anymore. And can I just tell you, God doesn't either. He doesn't. In fact, there, if you remember, maybe you missed this, but when we read Hebrews 9 at the very beginning, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant. There were three things inside the Ark. Did you catch this? There are three things. One is Aaron's staff or Aaron's rod that budded. The second thing was a golden bowl full of manna. And the, the third thing was the tablets of stone that the commandments were written on. These three things were inside the ark, and they're actually, they actually have to do with these three things we're going to talk about. So the, the first one I'll just talk about is, is Aaron's rod that budded. There's a story in the Old Testament, and you can go look it up. Uh, I believe it's Numbers, well, we're going to look at here the context in Numbers 17. But the people of Israel were grumbling and complaining, grumbling and complaining grumbling and complaining. And so God comes up with this plan. He said, I want you to get all of the, these staffs, which represents authority from all the different tribes. And well, let's just read what happens in verse three. It says, and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi, for there shall be one staff for each of the head of the father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony. He said, go take them into the holy place and go put them in there where I meet with you and the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I, will make, thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Do you realize that this was such an important deal that God had them put the rod of Aaron that budded as a pushback against the grumbling of the people to put it in there as a positive and negative reminder, essentially that if you, if you grumble, you'll repel the presence of God. And he put that in the ark. That's how powerful that is. And I think that's pretty important for us to realize. Here's a question. I got a question for each one of these. Here's a question. What area of my life am I speaking things that distance me from God's goodness? Do I, if you were to replay your conversation from the last week, <laughs> this is probably a dangerous thing for us to do, right? <laughs> but if we were to replay it, how many words are we speaking are distancing ourselves from the blessing, the provision, the truth of who God is? The staff was in there for a reason. All right, 
The, the second thing is, is that, well, let me just, I got one more verse here, because this really needs to be our heart. Psalm chapter 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, not just my words, but the melody in my heart. You know that every one of us has some sort of soundtrack. You ever have a song just stuck in your head, just playing, and all of a sudden you realize, that's been playing in my mind for like ever, right? And it, all of us have a melody, you know, it could be a positive thing, it could be a glorifying, God-honoring thing, or it could be a negative spirit on the inside of us. It's saying, let the words of my mouth and the melody of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You know what that does? That says, God, I'm creating a welcome environment to be able to host your presence today. I'm welcoming... And so listen, if we feel on the outside of God's presence, it could be because we've forgotten about the rod that budded, right? All right, the second thing is this, slanderous people. The second thing was a bowl of manna. Do you guys remember what this is about? This was where the Israelites were in, in the wilderness, and God supernaturally provides for them food, manna. They didn't know what it was. They didn't like it. And so they pushed back on that. They resisted that. They complained about that. And Ultimately, what they did is they accused God of not properly providing for them. So I want you to think about this. That's slandering God's character. When we accuse God of not properly providing for us or being who he says he is, we are slandering the character of God. And so that bull of manna is a dual-edged thing in, that, in the ark for a reason. It's to remind us that whenever we slander the character of God, we're not going to be experiencing his presence like we would desire. But it's also a reminder that God is a perfect provider. And maybe we just don't happen to agree with or like what's actually happening right now. And maybe we need to have open up our eyes, step back and say, God, I don't know right now why, but I will know then. But I trust you're a provider, and I trust you're a perfect provider. Otherwise, we become slanderers, and we repel the presence of God. Here's a, a question for us. What area of my life do I think God owes me something better? See, these things are in our heart because they're repelled. They're pushing back on the presence of God. Our third thing, rebellious people. Remember the third thing in there? It was the tablets of stone. It was the way that they should live, right? It was the commandments of God. And in the Old Testament, it was a very big deal that you live by all these rules and that externally you, you made sure you checked every single box, essentially, right? But God said when that curtain was torn and the new covenant came, that it was going to be different. There was going to be something new. It wouldn't be a forced external thing, but there'd be something new. If we go to the next chapter in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, it says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them in their minds. What is he saying? It's not just about external behavior, but there's going to come a day when the presence of God, when you become a host, when you are the ark, that all of a sudden it's not just external behavior that gets your attention, but there's something internal that the law of God is written on your heart, that the way of God is written on your heart. Here's my question for you in this area. What area of my life is there an external cooperation but an internal pushback? 
Like, because many of us might say, well, God, I'm doing what you want to do. I'm doing what you said to do. I'm doing what you asked me to do. But internally, we're fighting and we're pushing. We're pushing back. You know, because God desires inner obedience, not just external compliance. And those 10 commandments are there in the ark to remind us that in the new covenant, that God's ways are best, but God's ways need to be on the inside of us. Not just external behavior, but there's an inner obedience on the inside of us. These, all these things, these, the, you know, the negative thing, the grumbling, complaining, the slanderous talk against the character of God, the, the external compliance, but internal pushback, all these things, if you just think about it in your own life, they're pushing away the presence of God. They're pushing away the joy of, that comes with God. They're pushing away the peace of God. They're pushing away the blessing that comes with God. They're pushing away the heart of God in our life. And we fill our life with all these other things. There, there's no wonder there's no room for the presence of God. And so you go in and you try to have a quiet time and you, you try to have a time with God and, and your life is so filled with so many things. It's like a piece of pie that's cut with all these other slivers and there's just a little sliver that you have for God's presence. And proportionally, it seems like God isn't present. It's because we filled up the ark of our heart with so many other things, right? And so what do you do if you find yourself in this? Well, it's, it's very simple. We just, we turn our ark into an altar again. We let the blood of Jesus, the life of God, come back. And that may seem oversimplistic. Like, I could give you a bunch of how-tos to do that. Many of you guys know how-tos. It, it's not... I'm convinced that we don't need any more how-tos until there's an actual want-to. Because we can get how-tos all day long. We can write notes all day long. We can have podcasts all day long. We read books all day long. We can say words all day long. But if there's not an inner want-to, to give up those things and to be a host for the presence of God, it really doesn't matter. But I remember, I was just thinking of this story this week when I was in my early 20s and I was a youth pastor, and I'd been running pretty hard with a lot of responsibility at the time, trying to figure out how to lead and to, to grow a youth ministry that was, that was doing a lot of stuff. And, and I was leading one of my first missions trips in Mexico and by, my, by myself, and I was just, I think it was 21 years old. And, and so there was just a lot of pressure and stuff that kind of built up. And I was way deep in the mountains of Mexico, and just with a team of teenagers getting ready to preach for my first time using a, an interpreter in a small little church. I didn't even know what to preach on, you know, but we're standing there right before the service and, and just gathered around praying. And, and all of a sudden, something, just the teenagers just began to pray for me. And just in that moment, just a moment of surrender happened in me. And I just, it was like all of a sudden, I, I put down the facade and my own strength, and I just said, I just surrendered, and, and when I did that, like, all of a sudden, I just began to just cry. I just, and I'm not a crier. I normally just cry on the inside, not on the outside. So, uh, but I just began to let go. What was that? It was just a moment. If you were here last week, it was just a huckleberry moment where all of a sudden the presence of God was, was there tangibly. But this was bigger than that in the sense that this type of thing I'm describing can happen Anytime. It's simply a matter of surrender. It's simply a matter of opening up our hand at any time. And so I turned my ark back into an altar. 
And I'm just going to give us just a moment, and we don't have a lot of time, but just a moment just to do that before the Lord. So as the worship team comes back, I'm going to read one more scripture. If we keep reading in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, I want you to listen to this. This is the gospel message, by the way. All of these things. If you're struggling with things, and if you're a believer or a non-believer, here's the good news. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? Not by our own efforts, not by the Old Testament system, but by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. What is that saying? That what used to separate us from this presence was the curtain was torn by the the body of Jesus that was laid down upon the cross and his blood was spilled for us. And since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, over the house of, of God, let us then draw near with a true heart. Listen to these words, in full assurance. You don't come before God with shame. You don't come before God, you know, like afraid he's going to knock you over the head. You come with full assurance. With our hearts, listen to the imagery here, listen to the language. With our hearts now sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is all language uh, that was happening in the Old Testament, purification that is now available for us through Jesus Christ. That we can come with full assurance. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He promises faithful. And so can we take just a moment before God and turn our ark back into an altar and say, God, I want to be a host for your presence. Maybe there's some things we got to evict out of our container. And again, it's, it's not that we earn the presence of God. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying so many times we can fill our lives with so many things we can't even see the presence of God when it's near. So would you stand up with me? Can we take just a moment before the Lord? I believe it's important that God gives us these gifts of moments, of time. There's a reason why we gather together as a group of believers because we have this moment and we we get to use this moment as a gift before God and it's God's gift to us. So God, we... We're so thankful that the veil is torn. We're not on the outside of your presence anymore. It's not an invite-only proposition where you only invite one person once a year. You say all can come. But it's a dual invite. We have to also invite you. You say you stand at the door and you knock at our hearts, and so we have to answer the door. So, Lord, as we enter this moment right now, we just, come on, can you just see yourself opening up the door and allowing the presence of God to flood in once again, fresh, new power, blessing, protection, provision? Can we just evict those other things maybe out the back door, the grumbling, the complaining, the slander, the rebelliousness in our heart? God, we want your ways, your laws written upon our hearts and our minds. We want our words and the meditation, the melody of our heart to be pleasing to you. We want to welcome your presence to be a good host of the presence of God. 
be carriers of your presence. We say right now, and you might even just say this however you want to say this in your heart, in your mind, with your words, but you are welcome here. You are welcome. I invite you. I invite your presence. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, presence of God. Jesus, come and sprinkle the life of God on my heart once again. Come, Lord Jesus. We respond right now. We turn our ark into an altar, and we worship you once again. Come on, let's respond in worship.